The night was still, and the streets were bare as she walked home from her job at the club. The singer loved her work, often drawing crowds of 20 people or more. But she longed for greater things and dreamed of starring in the famous operas Puccini's Tosca, Verdi's Rigoletto, or even Mozart's Don Giovanni. She wanted to raise her voice to the heavens to celebrate her country's great artistic heritage in the Teatro dell'Opera, a stage for thousands to cheer. She often found herself wandering the beautiful streets of Rome at night, looking at all the grand opera houses and monuments of the past, hoping to add herself to their legacy of greatness. But as she walked, the chill of the night began to get to her, and she rubbed her arms to warm herself as she started to head home. Her route took her past the Colosseum, its ancient stone walls towering high, restored ruins imposing in their space against the night sky. The sheer presence of the Colosseum always made her feel minute and unimportant, leaving her overwhelmed by its splendor. Strangely, this night, the ancient arena was lit by a strange sickly glow, like the light from a fire cast through thick green glass. From the arches, she could hear a slight murmur reaching into her ears. The eerie sound built to a sonorous cheer, reverberating throughout her mind. She noticed a daunting man standing before the entrance. He wore an awful scowl and carried a spear and shield. He first glared at her, then stepped to the side, beckoning for her to enter the darkened archway through which she could hear that clangorous noise calling out. She was shocked to feel something cold and heavy appear in her hands. A sword and shield. She listened to the roaring voices. The sound of the crowd's adulation was everything she had hoped it would be. They were cheering so loudly. They could be cheering for her. She marched forward into the blackened entranceway, bound for blood and glory. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Roman Colosseum, one of the grandest arenas of the ancient world, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts.
Of all the grand monuments of the ancient world, none have as bloody and glorious a history as the Roman Colosseum. It stands over three stories tall, with archways spanning the walls and columns forming the support structures. The massive arena stretches 620 feet long and 513 feet wide, about the size of a modern-day football stadium. The Colosseum was commissioned sometime of the years 70 to 72 CE. The Roman Empire had been reeling after the chaotic and egomaniacal rule of Emperor Nero. His self-serving decadence caused the common people to resent Roman royalty. So when Vespasian claimed the throne, he was determined to preserve his own rule by serving the average citizen. He tore down the remains of Nero's palace and pledged that he would build the greatest sporting arena that Rome had ever seen, a grand locale within which the Roman people could witness fantastic bouts of gladiatorial combat. Given the scope of the project, it took several years just for the foundations to be laid, built with beautiful Roman concrete and delicately carved stone. The seats were made of marble, and the walkways hosted intricate artwork upon their walls. By 79 CE, the construction was close to finished, although Vespasian would not live to see it completed. He caught an illness and died of diarrhea, his friends holding him on his feet as he defecated because he believed an emperor should not die lying down. Vespasian's son, Titus, took the throne in 79 CE, and the Colosseum finished construction in 80 CE. In honor of his father, he marked its opening with a festival, the likes of which Rome had never seen before. He had exotic beasts shipped to Rome from all over the world. He had slaves, criminals, and prisoners of war brought to die within its walls. And he had trained gladiators to compete for glory before the people of Rome. He planned for the festival to last 100 days total, and the Roman people were ecstatic to witness large-scale bloodshed, the likes of which they had never seen before. Those hundreds of people who were sent to fight in the Colosseum were much less excited about their imminent deaths. Borillus marched forward along with his brother and nine of his countrymen. They had been dragged all the way from their homes in Gaul as prisoners of war. They had attempted to lead an insurrection against their Roman occupiers, but they had failed, and now they were here. His people wouldn't even get the honor of being sacrificed to the gods. Instead, their blood would run for the dirty peasant crowds frothing at their mouths for violence. He could hear them yelling as he walked through the dark stone halls. Roman spears pointed at their backs. The crowd got louder as they stepped out of the darkness into the open air. The light of the sun was almost blinding after the days he had spent chained up below ground. He could see the crowd's faces, clean and fat. The walls stretched higher than any he had ever seen before, and rows of seats packed with horrid people stretched further than he could see. The Romans moving like a mass of hostile flesh, their eyes wild with bloodlust as they brayed like vicious donkeys, 
just hoping to see him die. The arena itself stretched hundreds of feet, a wide open place with almost nothing in the middle, presumably so as not to obstruct the view. The emptiness almost made his imminent death all the more horrifying, as he was clueless as to what he was about to face. He had no choice. As he stepped into the sand, he felt his foot dampen, as if stepping in dew. He looked down to see that the ground was deep crimson red, pools of blood gathering all across the battlegrounds. He had seen fields drenched with the blood of war before, much of which he had spilled himself. But this, he had never seen anything quite like this. Each step he took went deeper and deeper into the field of blood. His countrymen walked with him as the Romans shut the gates behind them. He saw a glint of steel in the center of the massive field and his pulse quickened. He raced forward, his feet almost slipping in the slurry beneath him. As he approached the center, he saw that the metal was exactly as he had hoped swords of the dead piled there for his use. He reached for the hilt of a sword and grasped it, only to feel a piercing pain in his palm. He dropped the weapon and looked more closely at the pommel to see small, sharp metal spikes dripping with his blood. The stadium began to shake with the clamor of voices around him. He looked up, his eyes darting all around, seeking the cause of the commotion. Then, he saw it. Several yards behind him, a full-grown lion was tearing into the flesh of his brother, its long fangs pulling tendons and muscles out of his neck. In the distance, he saw another lion pursuing his unarmed countrymen, its claws slicing through their skin like daggers as they ran away, helpless. He turned his eyes back to the wicked swords, they hurt so much to hold, but his brother had just fallen, and these blades were his only chance at living. He grabbed the hilt and gripped it tightly. The spikes on the blade grew longer as he squeezed, piercing deeper into his palm. He got to his feet and turned to the nearest lion, still chewing on his brother's corpse. He stabbed at the beast's neck, the blade striking quick and cutting deep, the cat's blood spraying onto the ground. Yet as the metal met flesh, the sword shook, the force of the impact pushing the spike through his hand. The pain was almost overwhelming, but the lion turned to defend itself from the sudden attack, trying to strike at him as it bled. He swung his blade, metal connecting with fur and flesh. Yet each blow shook the spike, its point tearing through his own hand. With each movement, the blade worked its way through his flesh, his grip weakening as his fingers went numb, and his palm felt as if it were being split in two. With one final blow, the lion dropped to the ground. But his blade dropped too. He looked at his hand, and saw his fingers hanging limp. The spike had torn through his muscle and shattered his bone, leaving a mangled, pulpy gash in place of his hand. 
He turned and looked at the carnage around him. The lion had torn through five of his countrymen, but the rest of the stadium seemed eerily empty. Then he heard a great clank from directly behind him. He turned around. The ground itself had dropped down, sand spilling and blood flowing down into a great black hole beneath him. From the hole, he saw a flash of white, two vicious white eyes staring at him from the abyss. He heard a beastly, bloodthirsty cackle, the unbearable sound of death itself. Borillus looked in the darkness, then looked at the sword on the ground, its pommel slick with his blood, bits of his skin sticking to its spikes. He took a deep breath in, then lunged for the sword, grasping it with his uninjured hand. He grimaced from the pain. He would fight whatever this horrid monster was, but he hoped it would kill him. He had always wanted to die with a sword in his hand. People who witnessed the great shows of Roman bloodshed firsthand wrote about the wonders of the Colosseum. They said that during the great hunts of exotic animals, the beasts could appear at any moment from any corner of the battlefield, almost as if materializing out of thin air. In reality, the Colosseum functioned much like a modern-day stage. The base of the battleground was built out of wood and covered with sand to give it the illusion of being ground. In reality, there is a series of complex tunnels, hallways, gears, and pillars beneath the stage called the hypogeum, a Greek word meaning underground. Scores of men would move about the hypogeum, pushing and pulling cages filled with animals to all corners of the Colosseum. Using various devices, they would raise the cages to the floor above and place their openings against ramps that would lower downwards. Thousands of animals died within the walls of the Colosseum, and many people died fighting them. It should come as no surprise that such bloody sport resulted in the hauntings that would follow in centuries to come. Even 2,000 years later, the locals of Rome can hear the cacophonous wails of the menagerie of beasts that were slaughtered in the arena. Their spirits and the spirits of the men who died fighting them roar out into the air as their endless fight draws a ceaseless pouring of blood, all to feed the glory of the Roman Empire. Coming up, we'll continue examining the bloody history of the Colosseum. And now, back to the story. For four centuries, the Colosseum was the cultural center of the Roman Empire. Emperors and noblemen would fund exorbitant festivals, almost all of which involved blood sports of some kind. Being a patron for the festivals was often a show of wealth and social status, and it came with several perks. The patron who funded the games got a personal box with a great view of the battlefield, and the patron also decided who lived and who died. When two gladiators fought in the Colosseum, the fight would continue until one was incapacitated. If the felled opponent fought well, 
the audience would cheer for them to keep them alive. If the felt opponent fought poorly, the audience would boo and encourage the opponent to be put to death. However, the loser's life was ultimately subject to the approval or disapproval of the patron. As the loser lay on the ground, beaten and bruised, they would look up to the patron's box to await their fate. Contrary to popular belief, if the patron turned his or her thumb down, the swords were sheathed and the man would live to fight another day. However, if the patron turned his or her thumb upwards, the victor would strike the final death blow, executing the conquered combatant for all the crowd to see. These battles occurred with startling regularity for over 400 years, the building's incredible architecture standing strong against the desolation of time. However, while the Colosseum persisted, the events that took place within soon faced opposition from the Roman people themselves, as significant segments of the population converted to Christianity. Christian monks and priests were appalled by the common practice of violence and bloodshed as entertainment. They thought gladiator fights ungodly and unlawful and wished to put an end to the carnage. According to Christian tradition, this cultural distaste for gladiatorial combat came to a head on January 1st, 404 CE, when an ascetic monk from Egypt named Telemachus was visiting Rome. He attended a festival in the Colosseum to witness the horrors firsthand. He was so powerfully affected by the inhumanity he saw that he leapt from the stands and raced onto the battlefield. He sprinted to the soldiers and attempted to pull them apart from each other, all while shouting at the crowd in an attempt to convince their hearts to care for their fellow man. Rather than listen to Telemachus's concerns, the audience was upset that their entertainment had been interrupted. They booed and began throwing food at the monk. Telemachus was not discouraged. Instead, he shouted louder, only igniting the crowd's wrath. They began throwing stones. Rock after rock, stone after stone crashed against Telemachus's frame. And soon after he had pleaded for the crowd to spare the lives of the gladiators, the crowd saw his blood spill onto the sand instead. Telemachus' sacrifice was not in vain. The emperor Honorius himself was a Christian, and when he saw Telemachus' martyrdom, he was moved by this display of faith. Three days after Telemachus' death, Honorius issued a decree banning all blood sports within the Roman Empire. Chariot races and other feats of athleticism were still performed within the Colosseum, but the Christianized public's decline in interest and later collapse of the Western Roman Empire soon left the Colosseum abandoned and in disrepair. Then, over time, the Colosseum faced numerous natural disasters, including lightning strikes, fires, and earthquakes. It suffered particularly drastic damage in 847 CE and 1231 CE, as two devastating earthquakes led to the collapse of much of the upper levels of the Colosseum and the destruction of the Colosseum's south wall. 
as the Colosseum lay in disrepair and desolation, and Rome entered the Middle Ages, they decided to save some money by reusing stone rather than mining for new stone. The people began scavenging from the wreckage, repurposing the Colosseum's materials to build cathedrals and its iron to build swords. However, those spirits who had grown fond of their eternal resting place did not take kindly to the ransacking of their home. Dominicus scaled the walls of the Colosseum in darkness, hoping his foray into the arena would go unnoticed. He had run a tailoring shop with his family, but most of them had abandoned the business to fight in the Holy Land. The sole member of his family remaining in Rome, he found himself nearly destitute. The church had taken his workforce, and at the same time, the church had been taking from this old place. He was a good Christian man. Why shouldn't he be allowed to do the same? He hoisted himself up onto the second floor walkway, and felt his way down the hall, far enough into the shadows to free himself from any prying eyes. He pulled his oil lamp out of the sack strapped across his back and lit the flames. The soft orange glow brought the shadows to life as rubble, plants, and statues cast their silhouettes upon the cold stone walls. Dominicus pressed onwards as a slight breeze began to blow through the halls. The air carried dust to his nostrils and some pollen from the plants that had sprung up within the building's walls. Yet even as mucus began to build within his nose, he could still smell the slight iron-tinged scent of blood. Dominicus pinched his nose, discomforted by the smell. He had come expressly to find exotic flowers that had been brought to this place in the centuries before. The now wild flowers could fetch a fair price if sold fresh, but he'd have a difficult time finding those flowers with his sense of smell clouded. He ran his hands against the grasses and vines that lined the floor and walls, trying to see if he could feel any familiar plants, but it was no use. They all felt the same to him. He shone his lantern upon the greens to see if any interesting flowers had bloomed, but all were in their buds, and he had no way of knowing which of the buds would turn into the flowers he wanted. With his efforts stilted, he decided to search for other valuables instead. Marble was known to sell for a high price. While he couldn't carry out entire slabs like the church, he was sure he could get a small enough block from the thousands of seats in the stands to sell to an artisan for crafting materials. He moved ever inward, each step taking him closer to the arena itself. But as he moved, he began to hear something strange. The halls began to reverberate with the muted sounds of a large crowd. His pulse quickened, but he needed to find something, anything worth the time and energy he spent walking here. He finally reached the opening to the center of the building. He couldn't see the stars as the night sky was clouded and dark, and in the darkness, the far seats were invisible. He started moving down the stairs. As his lamp lit the seats beside him, he saw that they were completely empty. He trembled, eyes whipping all around the stadium. He was alone as far as he could see, 
but his ears told them there were people everywhere watching him shake in the darkness. Then he heard the grunting. His eyes landed squarely on the arena below him, and to his great surprise, he could see the frenetic movement of dark human figures, fast and daunting. He descended the stairs, transfixed by the eerie figures. As he approached, he noticed two distinct masses of darkness, each striking blows against the other. Dominicus almost couldn't believe his eyes. He drew closer, his lantern finally casting light on their shifting forms. He could see two men, their faces animalistic with rage. They swung swords at each other with awesome fury, their blades clanging together. Their features seemed very similar, and Dominicus felt himself thinking of his brothers and sons marching off to war. The image of his warring family grew within his mind, almost overwhelming him with emotion. His ears pricked with a soft whisper on the wind, saying, These are your brothers. These are your sons. And he felt his heart well up with a sadness he had never known before. He couldn't allow these men to fight. They simply weren't thinking clearly. Dominicus leapt over the railing and landed on the ground. He waved his lantern, hoping to get the men's attention, shouting at them to stop. They continued fighting, and he watched in horror as one man slashed the other's chest, knocking him down, blood pouring onto the ground. Dominicus rushed forward, hands outstretched, as the standing man raised his sword. He grabbed the man's arm, and in a second, his lantern went out. The sounds of fighting went silent. He could no longer feel the man's skin against his palm. The only sign that they had been here were a series of frenetic footprints left upon the ground. The air around him began to reverberate with the voices of thousands, all booing more loudly than he could bear. He cupped his hands to his ears, and his eyes frantically searched the darkness for any sign of life. Then he saw the Emperor's booth, shining a ghostly ethereal white. Inside, he saw a man dressed in elegant clothing, staring directly at him. The man's face was dour and upset as he raised his arm forward. The crowd hushed, sound in the arena going from overwhelming to non-existent in an instant. Dominicus watched the elegant man, his breath frozen in his chest, not sure what would happen next. The man's arm slowly turned. He extended his thumb, steadily, steadily, upwards. The crowd cheered, and the ground itself began to shake with their clamor. Dominicus watched as the Colosseum began to loosen at its seams, pieces of stone falling from everywhere. He sprinted towards the nearest exit, desperate to break free. His feet pressed against the sand, his legs burning with the effort. Yet, as he stepped ever forwards, he heard a crack, then felt a searing pain in his shoulder as a rock the size of an apple crashed against him. He dropped to the ground, crippled by the pain, 
He writhed in the dirt. Then he looked up and saw a spectral man looking down on him. He had a long beard and wore the robes of an ascetic monk, his face mournful and sad. As he heard another larger crack, Dominicus considered the church's actions and the monk's fate. Perhaps the church had seen more blood spilled here than he had realized. The vast array of exotic animals that were brought to die in the Colosseum also brought with them the plants of their homelands. Seeds stuck to their fur or contained within their stomachs would plant themselves within the stones and ground of the great building. And when the Colosseum fell into disrepair, these seeds began to flourish. Hundreds of grasses, flowers, and vines, not native to the Roman wilds, populated the Colosseum, a biome unique to that building alone. Naturally, adventuresome Roman citizens would travel into the ruins of the building to pluck what they could, but the dangers of a crumbling structure would often leave people with much less than they had before. Coming up, we'll learn about the Colosseum's later restoration and the ghosts that still haunt it. And now, back to the story. By the 1400s, the Colosseum in Rome had fallen into disrepair. Some of its walls had collapsed due to natural disasters. Much of its stonework had been taken to lay the foundations for other buildings, and plants from all over the world had grabbed hold of the ruins that were left behind. The once blood-stained arena had become verdant wreckage, peaceful and largely abandoned. By the 1800s, the Roman government began to grow tired of looking at the desolate place and wished to demolish it in order to build new structures on top of the massive swath of land that it took up. However, when they announced plans to tear down the arena, the Catholic Church spoke up in protest. The Vatican declared the Colosseum a sacred place of the Christian faith. They wished its high walls to stand as a memorial to all the Christian martyrs who were slaughtered in the arena for their faith. Historians remain uncertain as to whether or not early Christians were actually fed to the lions within the Colosseum on a mass scale. But whatever the case may be, the papacy succeeded in using its religious power to influence the politics of the day. Christians flocked to the ruins, putting up crosses and sacred symbols, praying to God for the souls of those who had fallen in the arena. Within a short period of time, renewed public interest saved the Colosseum from destruction. The Christian iconography remained in the Colosseum for almost a century, but the Colosseum would face its next major change in 1922, when Mussolini's fascist government took power in Italy. The fascists were largely opposed to Catholic power within Rome, and they soon wrested governmental authority away from them. In order to appease the largely Christian Italian populace, the fascists allowed the papacy to divest from the state, by declaring Vatican City its own nation. After that, it wasn't long before Mussolini began working to remove the church's influence over the Italian people. The Colosseum is one particularly clear example of this. One of the fascists' primary goals 
was to instate a sense of nationalistic identity within the Italian people. They attempted to instill that sense of identity by erecting new fascist monuments within Rome and restoring ancient monuments of the Roman Empire. As the Colosseum had stood for almost two millennia, it was the perfect example of Roman engineering prowess. Furthermore, its bloody history was the ideal reminder of that ancient Roman power, a supposed icon of what Italy could become again under the right leadership. The fascists tore down all of the Christian iconography contained within the Colosseum, uprooted plants and cleared away any growth from the great stone walls. Once the fascists had cleared the arena, they had regained the symbol they desired. They did not go forward with any true reconstruction efforts, and they did not attempt any archaeological studies to learn about its actual history. They had their monument to blood, power, and Roman identity, and that was all they cared about. Once the fascist government fell in 1943, the Colosseum stood largely untouched and forgotten by the Roman populace, but it would not be long before it garnered the interest of academics and historians the world over. Small groups of researchers would investigate the Colosseum over the next few decades, and soon the place began to acquire the interest of international tourists as well. In the 1990s, tourist traffic and research crews had brought so much attention to the Colosseum that the government decided to fund full restoration and reconstruction efforts. Crews began to remove the wreckage and put up support beams. Some crews even began to dig to see if they could find anything of interest below the arena's sand. Much to the surprise of those who dug, they discovered, or rather rediscovered, a series of complex tunnels and passageways that had long been forgotten. They had found the Colosseum's long-lost hypogeum, and with it, they had unearthed secrets both great and terrifying. Nancy brushed at the stone on the floor, trying to reveal the symbols and markings left behind from the years before. She had come to Rome all the way from the United States to work on her doctoral thesis on ancient Rome, and the opportunity to explore the Colosseum had been an absolute godsend. She had already helped discover wedges and levers she believed were used to raise cages up to the arena, and now she had been exploring an entirely new and fascinating arrangement of slews and lead pipes the purpose of which was entirely unknown to her and historians at large. She had finally chanced upon some etchings that she thought might explain their use, and she stayed well after everyone else left, just so she might get to the bottom of this mystery. The sun had already begun to set, and she had turned on a work lamp to keep brushing. She was sure that if she kept searching... If she just kept searching, she could beat the others. She could tell the world what she had found. She pictured herself writing books, speaking at conferences, hearing people cheer when she got on stage to accept her doctorate. The glory of ancient Rome could easily become hers, if she could only solve this puzzle. She scratched away at the wall, matted chunks of dirt dropping to the ground. 
As the dirt fell, symbols in the underlying stone became more and more visible. Even though they were worn down by the ages, she could finally see the light imprints of ancient Latin carved into the facade. The word read, Desico. She closed her eyes and tried to remember what that meant. Desiccation was an English word for drying something in extreme fashion, so perhaps the Latin root word desico meant something similar. She peered closely at the pipes and troughs near her, winding off into the dirt. Perhaps this word simply meant these waterways were some sort of drain? She unscrewed the lid from her water bottle and poured some water into the floor. She watched as it rested for a moment, then flowed into the dirt, much as water would roll down a drain. Yet, as the water traveled, the previously brown stone that it touched began to look red, a deep crimson red. The hair stood on the back of her neck as she looked at the word again. Desico, to dry, to drain. What did this place drain? When she looked upon the color once more, she realized the drain was built for blood. The fresh scarlet blood of all who had died here. She looked at the floor once more, and as she looked into that scarlet hue, she began to see something else. The bindings on her diploma, the lipstick she would wear on television interviews, the color of her new car. She was so close to solving the mystery, and the Colosseum itself seemed to want her to solve it. She could feel a strange, ethereal voice whispering around her neck to look closer. And as she looked, she knew that color was the key. She pulled a safety pin from her toolkit, raised her hand, and pricked her finger. A single drop of blood came welling up, and slowly, but carefully, she lifted the blood above the rut. She shook her finger and watched as that drop fell to the ground. She stared at the blood, holding her breath. Perhaps something would happen. No. Why did she think a drop of blood would do anything? It didn't make any sense, and she knew it didn't make any... Then she heard a deep, guttural rumbling. She turned around, looking down the darkened corridor. She stepped up to her work lamp and lifted it, rotating it back towards the entrance of the hypogeum. And in the light, it was there. A raucous deluge of frothing water raging towards her in the dark. She took a quick breath before the wave consumed her. The bulbs in her light had shattered with the crashing water. And with the light gone, she was lost in inky darkness as she felt her body be mercilessly tossed to and fro in the churning waves. Her torso slammed against the wall, the pain immediate and overwhelming. The waters tossed her back and forth before finally throwing her upwards. She felt her head breach the surface, and she took a quick breath before being pulled beneath the water once more. Her lungs began to ache from the strain. Miraculously, she felt the waves begin to still, and she opened her eyes. 
to wonder at how she was still alive. Yet her eyes almost couldn't believe what she was seeing. The arena was lit up by a ghastly green glow with flecks of orange here or there. Crowds had filled the stands, the specter of many Romans, their clothing stretching across all the eras of the empire. She floated in the middle of the entire Colosseum as it was filled with thousands, perhaps even millions of gallons of water. Right behind her head, she heard something hit the water. She whipped around as best she could to see a great shadow, big and intimidating, floating upon the water. It seemed to have a dozen arms all moving in unison, breaking against the waves as it charged right past her. She turned to see where it was going, only to spot a second mass of darkness moving on the waves. She could now tell they were silhouettes of great Roman warships rowing across the water, and they seemed to appear out of thin air before bearing down on her floating in the center. The two great behemoths began to move toward one another. Then the shadows began to light up. She saw spectral men carrying spectral bows, their arrows ablaze with greenish fire. She watched as the arrows flew. They pierced the shadows and they pierced the men. She saw their blood splatter into the air as they cried in pain. She saw their flesh catch a light and their faces curl in agony. She saw the great shadows themselves begin to burn, despite their position upon the water. She looked to the stands and saw thousands of men, women, and children watching the horror show, their eyes wide with excitement toothy grins allowing their misshapen and rotten teeth to shine in the sickening spectral light. She shook her head. This was not what she wanted. She dove beneath the surface and began to swim downwards, searching the darkness for where she once had been. As she descended, she heard muffled splash after muffled splash. As spectral corpses torn apart by sword and steel began sinking next to her. Their empty eyes peered deep into her soul, but she continued to dive alongside them. Their flesh began to disintegrate as she reached the bottom, and the glow from their frightening visages cast a dim and unsettling light upon the stones. Her lungs began to burn as she grew desperate for air. She scrambled in the eerie underground, swimming past cold stone walls. Each had slight markings and small indications of where she was. She read the markings with only the spectral glow to guide her, her vague memories of these passageways guiding her deeper into the cavern. Then she saw it the small corner of the room and the light imprint upon the wall where she had first read Desico. She reached out and traced the word with her finger, her vision going spotty black. Then the water began to drain. She sunk to the ground, laying upon the stone, somehow unaffected by the torrential flow. Finally, she could breathe once more, 
She lay exhausted upon the ground, the room around her pitch black. And yet, even in the darkness, she could see just beneath her a single spot of deep crimson red. She thought back to the horror she had just witnessed and smiled. All that death and destruction, the price of glory. And for her, their deaths were worth it. The Hypogeum is one of the most fascinating parts of the Colosseum that is still standing today. Its secrets have only recently been probed. But one of the most interesting parts of its discovery had to do with slight bits of evidence that indicated the entire arena might have once been filled with millions of gallons of water, all to reenact epic, large-scale sea battles for the viewing pleasure of the general public. These battles would have been the single most spectacular and most expensive events the Roman public had ever seen. It would require water to be piped and carried for miles, an engineering feat almost unparalleled at the time, all for the sake of entertainment. These mock sea battles were the perfect representation of everything the Colosseum stood for. Senseless spectacle, absolute glory, and ceaselessly flowing rivers of blood. Today, the Colosseum is one of the most popular tourist attractions in the world. As you visit, be sure to walk through the Hypogeum. Witness the massive heights of the stands, smell the exotic flowers, and imagine yourself witnessing the violence that brought those stands to life. But as you wander, be wary of the mark death has left on that place. Say hello to the ghosts of Praetorian guards who can sometimes be seen standing at their posts. Listen to the ghastly howls and roars of the great beasts whose spirits have never left and hear the cheers of a crowd, still bloodthirsty, even in the afterlife. This is the ultimate legacy of all who died in the Colosseum. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Giles Hofseth. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>